Isn't it amazing to have the orchestra here? I love their presence with us because it, it reminds us that the season we're walking through is different. Right? We're not in kind of normal church year. We're in Advent. It's a different time of year. And so it, it's a visual reminder and just all the different giftings that are present. I'm so thankful for it. It ties into what we began talking about last week is how do we walk through this season differently? What's it look like to walk through Advent intentionally? As I was thinking about that over this past week, I ran across a quote that I found to be pretty striking, striking in its accuracy. We'll see if you agree. It says this, 25 years ago, Christmas was not the burden that it is now. There was less haggling and weighing, less fatigue of body, less wearing and weariness of soul, and most of all, there was less loading up with trash. How's that for a positive quote? Now, I love this season, but I do know that often by the time January comes, I am exhausted. And so I was struck by this quote and its accuracy as much as I love Christmas. As I got to the end of the quote, here's what I was shocked by. The person who spoke this quote said it in 1904. Imagine what they would think now, 116 years ago. If I could sum up what Christmas is like in America, if I could grab one word that kind of captures it, I think the word I'd, I'd offer would be more. More. We need more. You need more. I need more. More of what? More of everything. But if that weren't accurate enough, or if we wanted to use two words, the second word I might use would be better. More and better. It's not just that I need more stuff. It's that the stuff I have is no longer good enough. I need better stuff. Version 2.0 or 12.0. And that's a challenging message to hear day in and day out. And it's kind of on steroids during this season, isn't it? And yet last week we were asked, we were asked to slow down and reflect on what this season really is about. It's about wonder. It's about worship. We're asked to turn off all the no noise and try to walk through these days differently. So a good question is, did we do it? Did we do it? There's still time. It's early. One of the messages I took away last week was that we are called to be countercultural people. We're called to walk through this time and all times differently. The world's stuck on bickering. Let us be people of peace. The world's stuck on self-worship. Let us worship our creator and our king. And now as we come to this week where we think about generosity, the world is stuck on consuming and telling you that we need more what if we would be countercultural people and would instead say we are going to be people of generosity? We're going to be people who say to the culture, no, we don't need more. Consuming does not define us. I think we'd all agree that's a good thing, right? We can all agree it'd be good to be more generous. The question I'd like to consider with you this morning is how do we become more generous? What's the key to a more generous life? 
In order to look at that, we're going to look at some of Jesus' words. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous and kind of longest sermon. We're jumping in right in the middle of chapter 6, so it's going to be a bit of a cold start here. But we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 24, and you'll catch the theme really quickly. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Maybe some of your translations say you cannot serve God and money. Last week, we reflected on the fact that, that we were made to worship. We were made to wonder. That's the way we were created, going all the way back to Genesis, when God made man and woman. That's what we are made for. So the question isn't so much whether we will worship. The question is what we will worship. Worship is our default position. We are lovers. We are worshipers. That's who we are as people. And Jesus here gives us kind of a choice. He poises, or he poses kind of a choice for us whether or not we will allow wealth or money to serve as the ultimate point of importance for us or whether we will reserve that space for God alone. We have a choice to make, he says. I think this passage and this statement of Jesus is saying something about worship, but I think more interestingly and more importantly, I think it's saying something about us as people. I think it's saying something quite profound about us, actually. And what it's saying is that we are not the kind of things, the kind of people that are capable of worshiping multiple things at once. Just not possible. Can't do it. We are apt to think that, that I can hold a number of things uh, kind of in the top tier of my life. I can look at wealth or I can look at my career. I can look at my popularity or whatever. And I can hold all of that intention and say, God is as important as this stuff or I can make sure I can kind of pursue those things at the same time. But Jesus is just saying, can't do it. Can't do it. We have to make a choice. The question is, where will we give our allegiance? Now, I think it's interesting and important that Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't worship God and money as if it's possible but, but not permissible or something like that. He says you cannot do it. It is just a reality that that is an impossibility for us. So we have a choice. Now, I think we would all say we know the right choice. The choice is to say, I'm going to worship God. But I think that if we are honest with ourselves, a certain amount of insecurity kind of creeps in when we say that. If I'm honest with myself, there's a little part of me that says, if I give up the chasing after stuff or after wealth or after a good life, according to the world's terms, will I be okay? If I don't make that first priority in my life, will life turn out in a blessed way, in a way that, that I want it to? If I don't look out for number one, will I really be cared for and looked out for? I think it's a natural question. Verse 25, Jesus addresses it. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. 
as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So if we, reject, if we reject the consuming draw of wealth, if we reject the cultural narrative, the habit of thinking it's my job to secure everything for myself, who will take care of us? Answer, our Father. My Father, your Father, our God who is in heaven will provide for us. Now Jesus, I think, is, is inciting some humor. I think he's actually being a little funny here. And you can imagine him sitting on this Galilean hillside and looking around and seeing the birds. And he makes a comparison, but the comparison assumes an answer. Of course, God cares about people more than he cares about birds. Of course. And yet, look how easy and carefree a bird's life is. God provides. So will he not much more provide for you and for me? Other places in the Gospels, Jesus kind of then follows up with a question. I'd love to ask it to you. I think it's tongue-in-cheek, but it, it, it serves a purpose. He says, so how many birds is your life worth? Church, if you had to weigh your life in birds, how many birds would it be? Is it two sparrows? A cockatoo? A pelican, if you're kind of that kind of person? The point, of course, is that no amount of birds measure up to the worth and the value and the love and the care that God has for you. You are worth much more than the birds. Much more than the birds. And that's why we have the chance to no longer bow down to the dollar, no longer participate in the frantic running after securing our own wealth, our own popularity, our reputation, we can reject that because we stand in the strong assurance that we have a God that will provide for us. We have a God that loves us more than anything else in the world. How do we live a countercultural life in the midst of this world? Well, we grow in our belief that God will provide for us. Now, of course, we can do that. We can grow in that belief just by reflecting on who God is. We can think about just his character and his immensity. We can grow in it by reading his word, of course, and looking at the way over time he's cared for his people over and over again. If you're so inclined, you can study the birds and look at the way God cares for nature and just say, boy, he does that for me as well. But one of the things I find, I find helpful at this point is just to admit to God, I struggle to believe this. Lord, I struggle to believe that if I let go of this stuff, you really will provide all that I need. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Sometimes faith grows because we ask for it. God, help me to believe this. Verse 27. Jesus here is going to give us another reason to reject worry. He says, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? 
So the logic here is simple. Worrying doesn't change a thing. Have you ever thought of anything in your life that's come to pass because you worried about it and worry was the thing that caused it to happen? And the answer is, of course not. That never happens. Worry just makes no sense, does it? But we do it. I'm a bit of a born worrier. That's a little bit of an admission to you. As a kid, I worried about the silliest things. I tried to think of some of the things that I worried about, and then I thought, what could I tell you that I worried about that wouldn't make you think I'm too crazy? I grew up in Omaha. I was terrified of tarantulas. I thought I was going to get bit, bitten by a tarantula. There's no tarantulas in Omaha. What an illogical, silly worry, but it consumed me. I'd have dreams about it. I didn't get bit by a tarantula. There was no mass breakout at Henry Dorley Zoo that, that, that threatened my life. But the reason I didn't get bit isn't because I worried about it, right? Worrying doesn't change a thing. It makes no sense. And yet we live in an age of worry. And our countercultural posture is that we can put that off. We can let go of that. We no longer need to think that we can secure our wealth, secure our future according to the pursuit of money, the pursuit of worry or the embrace of worry. That's where we get to stand. Continuing in verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? I love paying attention to when much more occurs in Scripture. You see it a lot. Much more. God cares for you much more. And then he uses this phrase, you of little faith. Sometimes I think that can sound kind of almost derogatory, but, but I think it's, it's just kind of a statement of fact. They are small in faith. It's a little bit of a favorite term of Jesus to chide his disciples a little bit. Often it comes up when they're struggling to believe that he can do something in the physical world that seems impossible. Calm a storm. So you have little faith. And that's kind of who we are. We are little faiths. We ask that our faith would grow. And as Jesus continues here, what he's doing is building a compelling case for why those who are alive in God's kingdom, alive to God, no longer need to live as the world does. We don't need to live anxious, running to and fro, fretting after our life and scurrying about trying to secure our end. He showed how God's provision is sufficient for the birds. And then he's made it obvious to us that God loves us much more than the birds. And he's shown us that worry makes no sense. Let's put it away. And then he points to the flowers, of course, on the hillside as well. And he reminds us that our God is not just a provider, but he also is this incredible beauty creator. He is a creator king, and in the flowers, he has granted some glory, this wondrous goodness to these flowers. And that's who God is. And he'll care for us much, much more. 
Last week, we were reminded to turn things off, right? Don't look for beauty on Facebook, something like that. Instead, maybe go out, see a sunset, watch a sunrise. Go out on a walk or walk around a lake. And I'm sure some of you can resonate with that. There is a refreshment that comes when we're out in nature. And part of the reason for that is because when we are in nature, we see God's will being done in a certain kind of way. We see his kingdom being made manifest in a certain kind of way. And we see the kind of God we have. We have a God that creates all this. We have a God that oversees all this. And there's an incredible increase in our faith that can occur if we look at that and say, the same God loves me. The same God cares for me. Look how powerful he is. Look how creative he is. Look at the beauty he creates. It's part of the reason it's so refreshing to go out in nature. So there's a profound confidence that comes in seeing how God works in one area and then coming to grips with the reality that he extends the same grace to me. So Jesus says, hey, look at the birds. Study the birds. Study the lilies. Let your faith grow because of that. Because God will do the same for you. Verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Here's how one commentator I read unpacked these verses and just kind of the tone of the sermon or this part of the sermon. He says, we have no reason ever to be anxious. This world, this present world is a perfectly safe place to be. No reason to be anxious. This world is a perfectly safe place to be. But if you're like me, you want to say, Jesus, are you paying attention? Have you seen the world we're living in right now? Doesn't seem like a safe place to be. And the truth is, if we place our confidence in this world, it is not a safe place to be. We'd be crazy to say so. But Jesus, of course, was living with his confidence on a different realm. He was seeing God at work. He saw God's kingdom. He placed his confidence in God's ability to oversee everything. His trust was placed on things that you cannot see. And he, he was grounded in the reality that even as bad things happen, we have a God that we know will make it okay in the end for his children. Jesus even said in John, in that closing, kind of his closing remarks to his disciples, hey, in the world you'll have trouble, but don't fear, I overcame the world. I have overcome the world. The place where Jesus placed his confidence, right, in God and God alone, enabled him to live a life free of angst and worry and fear and frantic running after more and more, better and better. And we can live there with him if we place our faith where he placed his, in God and in his kingdom. Of course, if I place my faith, if I really think the world is only going to turn out okay for me if I care for myself, if I look out for number one, well, then I better put money and wealth on a pedestal. I better worship it. 
If that's my job, if that's my job, then it better become the most important thing in the world to me. But Jesus says what? He says that's the way the Gentiles live. Gentiles is just another way of saying those who live apart from God. It's the way those who live apart from God live. That's the way the world lives. But we, you and I, we have this incredible opportunity to live differently. We get to live in the insurance, the assurance, the reality that our God cares for us and he will provide for us. As this passage or this part of the sermon comes to a close, Jesus kind of sums up the way he's kind of been approaching the entire theme, Matthew 6, 33. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So throughout this short passage, Jesus has made it very, very clear to us that we can live a life that is countercultural. We can live a life that is markedly different from the world. We can live a life that is abundantly secure and confident that we will be okay because we have a father that cares for us. And therefore, we can reject the ways of the world. We can reject consuming. We can reject hoarding up wealth for ourselves. Why can we reject it? We reject it because we have a God that's given us absolutely all that we need. He tells us where to set our eyes. He says, set our eyes on God and on his kingdom and on his righteousness. His righteousness is another way of just saying his faithfulness to us. God is faithful. He will supply for us. And as we set our focus there, our, our attention there, our confidence there, then this promise that comes at the end of verse 33 can be a reality for us. It says, all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Well, they're just the things that we need. All that we need will be added to you. That sounds good, doesn't it? I love this passage. I love especially Matthew 6.33, and they're the kind of words and the kind of verses that you're tempted to, to put on the side of your kitchen wall or something, right? It's a nice stencil. Or we put it above a, a fireplace. But the question for us is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Now, the second question as it relates to our theme today is, what's this have to do with generosity? Well, I could read to you a number of verses. We could go over and over a number of different verses that make a command to us, whether it be from Jesus or Peter or Paul, James, make a command to us to be generous. Brad read 1 Timothy to us, 1 Timothy 6, that we are called to be generous people, and that's exactly right. We need to listen to those commands. They're imperatives. They're urging us to live a certain way. But I think so often what we do is we hear those commands, and our inclination then is to say, what I need to go do is try really, really hard to be generous. And we kind of grit our teeth and we tighten our grip and we get white knuckles and we say, I'm going to be generous this year. And church, that's a recipe for burnout. It's a recipe for burnout. See, the principle that runs through scripture is when we see these commands, the question we should ask ourselves is, how might I become a generous person? How might I be the kind of person for whom generosity 
flows. And the answer, of course, is to have my heart be transformed and to be transformed by the knowledge that God has given me everything I need. I stand in a place of absolute sufficiency. Therefore, I can loosen my grip. I can loosen my grip. Just imagine this with me for a minute. If I really believe that, if I believe Psalm 23:1, the Lord's my shepherd, I lack nothing. If I believe that, will my inclination when needs arise be to hold on to stuff or to just let it go? Well, if I really believe I lack nothing, I have everything I need. My God will provide all my needs. He cares for me much more than the lilies and the birds. Then I am standing in a place of absolute freedom. Freedom to be generous, freedom to let go, freedom to give away. The great irony of these days, these days of Advent in our culture, is that the time when we are supposed to be most filled with wonder and worship is the time where our sense of well being is most threatened, actually. You don't have enough. Your family's not good enough. If you just buy those flannel pajamas, and all sit around the tree together in beanies. Maybe you'd have the bliss that is on this commercial. They're only $9.99. Buy those two trucks, those matching trucks, and your marriage will be really good. You know the commercials? What they're threatening is threatening our sense of well being during a time where we're supposed to be filled with wonder and with worship. You almost might say there is a devious plan that is trying to rob us of the very thing these days are supposed to be about. Now, we have some kids in the crowd. I want to assure you, I'm not saying don't buy gifts, okay? But I don't think it's the joy of giving that is driving $1 trillion worth of spending. I think what's driving that is a need to feel like my life is okay, like I measure up, like I'm blessed. I think so often we spend and we spend way beyond our means because ultimately we're looking for some sense of security and some sense that I measure up. And Jesus says that's the way the Gentiles live, that's the way the world lives, and church, we no longer need to live that way. And so what if this Christmas, what if we would be grounded in the reality that our God provides for us? He loves us. He has given us everything we need. We lack nothing. We stand secure. And grounded in that reality, we would embrace a heart of generosity knowing that we are okay and we can give away freely because our God will provide for us. What would it look like if we as a people would say we're going to embrace intentionality and intentional generosity, not out of some compulsion, but because we know our God gives us everything we need. That's who he is. We are sufficiently supplied for. What if we made Christmas lists not out of a sense of lack or scarcity, but out of a sense of fullness? And we decided to, to purchase a gift, not 
according to dollars spent, and that's how we express our care, but according to time spent, or thought given. What might it look like for us to walk through these days differently? For each one of us, that's going to look a little different, and I'm trusting that God's Spirit is going to prompt in you the way that you might walk through these days intentionally and embracing intentional generosity. But we did put a few ideas in this little handout, I will call it. If you are watching online, you can get this online. But there are some practical ideas of ways to enact generosity, ways to to be intentional during this season. I wanted to highlight two ideas. The first is just to be intentional with your spending. And of course, step one on that is just to make a budget, right? That's simple. And then stick to it. That's the second thing. But the one thing I thought about spending during this year that I thought might be relevant for us to talk about, especially because of COVID and all that's transpired, is what if this year, instead of blessing big box stores and Amazon and Walmart and all these big national retailers, what if we said, you know, our community's hurting? What if this year we said, I'm going I'm to buy a gift that, that is local. I'm going to bless those around me. I'm going to bless the people that are right here in our midst because this has been a hard year. And that's the way I'm going to, one of the ways I'm going to walk intentionally with my spending this year. Might be something God might prompt you to do. The other thing I want to make kind of, kind of draw attention to is, is the fact that as we're reading this passage, one thing that is really clear is that there are places in the world and there are people that don't know where the next meal is going to come from. That's one reason we partnered with, with Compassion in Nicaragua. We work with Hope Venture in Africa and in South Asia. And part of the reason for that is because we know that, that one of the ways that God might provide for them is through us giving generously. Out of our abundance, we then can help others and God might fulfill his promise to take care of them through us. So that's something we, we wanted to challenge you with, is just to think about that. Outside in the hallways, there are kind of wood kiosks that have giving opportunities that will bless people in the world that really are lacking. We are not lacking But there are people who are. And so how might we be used by God to provide for them? Just a few things to consider. But of course, the grounding for all of this is our incredible, abundant sufficiency because of who our God is and how he loves us. As we close, will you humor me for a moment? I wanted to show you a family video. All right, it's, it's a video of my daughter three years ago, Lucia. She was three years old, and of all the gifts we've ever given her, this gift is actually the one that is the most memorable to me. Uh, you'll see why it's kind of funny to me in just a moment, but let's watch Lucia opening some of her gifts three years ago. What is that? It's Astro Fire Ghosts. Do you love I that? Think, yeah. She got stuff that I got. What else did you get? Um, I got second. I want to open it. Okay. Is this her last thing? <laughs> oh, man. She's oh, got what a snack. Yeah. There's the other got, one. Oh, you got two? Is that one? Is one baby? Maybe it's Sam. 
You can share with him too. Yeah. If you were having a hard time understanding it, it's okay. It took us time to learn three-year-old Lucia language, right? But if you didn't get that, the gift was goldfish, a snack pack of goldfish. Not just any goldfish, extra cheddar goldfish, which is a hard three words to put together if you're three. But we might as well have given her a pony. It's the most amazing thing. Oh my gosh, extra cheddar goldfish is what she said. the joy of giving, the joy of receiving. But you know what else I love about that video? And I asked Lucia the other day whether she would still do this, and the answer was no. She's six now, and she's wised up the ways of the world. She got a second one, and what did she think? I should give this to Sam. I think Lucia knows, knew, there's more where that came from. Mom and dad are not lacking extra cheddar goldfish. I can give one away. I'm okay. There's more where that came from. It transforms your ability to be generous. What if in these days we would be grounded in the reality that we have a father for whom we can say there is more where that came from. He can richly supply for you and for me. We stand in a secure position, and the position is we are lacking for nothing. He will care for us. And because of that, our heart can start to be at rest, and we can start to live in abundant generosity because of his goodness to us. Let's walk through these days growing in our belief that we have a God that supplies all that we need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are our abundant provider, that we lack nothing, that we stand secure. And Lord, we say to you, there are times where we struggle to believe this, so help our belief. Secure our heart in that truth. And because of it, God, help us to live in a way where we let go. We let go and we look to bless the world around us through generosity inspired by you and your abundant generosity to us. Amen.